Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bestener, here as always with my friend and colleague, Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast, Arsalan Khan. Arsalan is an assistant professor of anthropology at Union College, and we've invited him to talk about Imran Khan. So uh, Arsalan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Daniel and Derek, for having me. So here's a basic question. Who is Imran Khan? Where does he come from? What's this guy's life story? Life story. Imran Khan is a, a very, very uh, a prominent um, uh, celebrity cricketer. Um, he was um, the captain of the, of the Pakistani team um, and won the World Cup in 1992, the Cricket World Cup. So cricket is a very, very popular sport in Pakistan. So in a sense, Imran Khan was a national hero. Um, um, before turning um, to politics um, in the 2000s. Um, he was a national hero, um, well-known celebrity, well-known for having a very uh, kind of a, a lifestyle that, uh, uh, you know, very uh, social, uh, quite a celebrity connected to the British upper classes and aristocracy, um, but also popular in the masses as a kind of Pakistani cricketing hero. So, what was his ideology back then? Did, was he someone who talked about politics or what is the role of the athlete in Pakistan? I, I don't know. Um, are they people who comment on current affairs? Are they people who kind of stay out of it? Here, obviously, there's been a lot of drama with uh, Colin Kaepernick saying things during BLM. There were athletes saying, uh, you know, things uh, that were political. But what is the function of the athlete in Pakistan? Um, you know, it's a good question. I don't think that most, many athletes, I mean, some athletes definitely are in the political mainstream or they've, you know, they speak out in terms of politics or they have alliances with particular political parties. Um, um, but, uh, nothing of the kind that, uh, Imran Khan has pursued is very, very active kind of public role. Most of the role of the athletes and uh, athletes, which are primarily cricketers, you know, is to be involved in cricket and which is itself a deeply politicized space in the sense of selection committees and how to represent the country. And, and so I think most athletes in Pakistan, most cricketers have, have focused, um, energies on cricket, um, and on, uh, that. So Imran Khan is unique in the sense that he stepped into the political mainstream, um, and uh, made a kind of claim um, for yeah political authority. He was unique, of course, because as the captain of that World Cup winning World Cup team, he was uh, he also stood apart. I mean, he's also himself a legendary k- cricketer. He's not uh, so he was uh, both the captain of that team and um, uh, kind of yeah well known um, and a heartthrob, well known for his uh, looks and his ability, um, his sort of charisma. So. Am I misremembering? Didn't he marry a Rothschild or a Jewish woman? Is that yes. correct? So how did that play in Pakistan? Did people care about the fact that he was marrying someone outside of the country, someone who wasn't a Muslim? What, what role did that play in his politics or his sort of image? Yes, that's been, um, I mean, you know, over time that, uh, that was, I mean, she, she converted, uh, to Islam formally. And so, um, um, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, because yeah, important so to know. Yeah. At that time. Um, and But there was, of course, a lot of, I mean, the Islamic right wing had kind of long criticized him for having these affiliations and these connections, the right wing. Um, and so it was a, it was a sort it was a mixed thing. I mean, there were certainly lots of people who uh, deeply admire her um, and respect her as well. Um, but, but the, the Islamic right, the the right that is tends to be more towards the Islamist um, direction, have long also criticized him for having this kind of this, uh, this kind of lifestyle and these connections. And of course, there are conspiracies around the connections and ideas about him being a Western agent and things like that. So that's there's, there's a long controversy of that. Um, when I'm not sure exactly when they were divorced, but. Uh, he has children with her, of course, and, and they live in England and London. Um, and so, 
yeah, I mean that that life of his is occasionally brought up um, in the in the critiques of him. So, what were his politics at this early stage of his career? What was he actually arguing? What's the state of Pakistan in the 1990s? Uh, how does that transform? Maybe give us a little context because our listeners might not be familiar just with the pure politics of post Cold War Pakistan. Yeah, you know, I mean, in the 90s, Imran Khan, I think he was generally remained critical, um, but not aggressively critical. I think he really came into the kind of political mainstream. He started... Critical of what, though? Like, what's even happening? Assume no knowledge. What's going on in Pakistan? What's going on in Pakistan? I mean, the 1990s, you know, uh, Pakistan transitioned from in 1988 back to democracy. It had a, a series of the, the of back and forth between the two main political parties, the Pakistan People's Party um, and the Pakistan Muslim League Party, um, in from, from from all the way up to 1997. 1997, I believe, is I don't want to get all the dates exactly. I don't have them in front of me, but I believe Musharraf came to, uh, took uh, control uh, in a military coup um, in in 1997. Um, so, what is the pol- just one question? So, what's the policy in the 1990s? Is it a developmentalist? What is Pakistan trying to be in the world? What is it? doing in this post-Cold War moment where it doesn't quite have the U.S. and Soviet Union to play off each other? What are the general political things happening? Yeah, so I, I, 1999 is the, the, the Musharraf coup. Um, Pakistan, you know, Pakistan was a major player, of course, in, within with the United States and the Iran Jihad in the 1980s. Um, in the 1980s, Pakistan uh, went through a major Islamization of the country. That is to say, the general Ziaul Haq um, took power in 1977, um, was assassinated in 1988, after which Pakistan returns to a, a democratic setup. Um, and General Ziaul Haq was allied uh, with the U.S. Um, in facilitating the Iran Jihad, um, um, so faci- uh, working with the Saudis, with the United States, um, in um, in yeah, arming and basically training the mujahideen who are fighting in Afghanistan. At the same time, Pakistan itself is going through um, an, an Islamization campaign um, that he was or- orchestrating, um, including the Islamization of legal systems, the establishment of Sharia courts, Islamic courts. Um, so Pakistan emerges in 1988 out of this process. Um, with a state sovereignty is kind of the notion of the state very, very closely tied to Islam, um, Islamic identity and the promotion of, uh, of, of Islamist parties. These, but these parties never had like mass popular support. They were, it was really a military dictatorship that was pushing down a kind of top down Islamization process. Um, and with the kind of backing in a sense of the, of the United States. And so when Pakistan transitions in the 1990s, I mean, the 1990s are a period of, of, of deep democratic contestation between these two major national parties and a back and forth. I mean, I myself am from Karachi. I can tell you more about Karachi's politics than anything. Uh, um, but Karachi was extremely chaotic in the 1990s. There were like um, massive, uh, there was a lot of ethnic, ethnic rivalries, ethnic battles, ethnic conflicts. So it was a kind of, a, you know, kind of crisis-ridden uh, country, um, and uh, U.S. sanctions uh, were implemented. I'm trying to remember when the sanctions were implemented in, I think, '98. So Pakistan was basically a. It was this in-between phase until Musharraf took power, uh, military took power in 1999. Now, I mean, the back, the backdrop to all of this is really that the military is the major player in Pakistani politics. Military has been the major player for for much of the country's history. It is the dominant force. For those who do not know, maybe that's the background that needs to be understood. And the civilian politicians have have mostly been subordinated. Have come to power in alliance with the military. That's a, a large part of this history. Arslan, I'd like to get into that actually in more detail but before we do as part of the kind of islamization movement that's happening in pakistan can you talk a little bit about how that relates to similar processes that are happening in afghanistan in this period the rise of the taliban uh the rise eventually of a pakistani version of the taliban what what are the inter what's the interchange 
there in terms of kind of the 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 emergence of more and more conservative Islamic movements. Pakistan is born out of a kind of Muslim identity, out of out of uh, as the British Empire comes to an end in 1947, the leaders of the Pakistan movement, the Muslim League, demanded an autonomous, independent state for the Muslims of India, the Indian subcontinent. The idea was that Muslims could not live as a minority. Um, or would would not be free as a minority in a Hindu-dominated India. This was the argument that the Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Pakistan nationalist movement, made. So Pakistan was born is at as a Muslim as a Muslim country. Okay, now this is a kind of important shift as a Muslim country. But from the very beginning, almost 1949, um, Pakistan's state identity had been kind of linked, in a sense, to Islam. Right, it's Muslim identity, but it, an, uh, an Islamic recognition that Islam had this kind of sovereign authority. So from, from the 1940, late 40s, 50s uh, to 70s, Islamist political movements, movements that wanted the establishment or the, the kind of solidification and of, of an Islamic state in Pakistan. Islamist central argument is that we need an Islamic state with an Islamic law, and if we establish an Islamic state with an Islamic law, then we can produce a more Islamic society. This society will have a certain kind of independence from the West, uh, and uh, an Islamic identity will be the means through which Pakistan will be revived and economically, politically, morally. Okay, so this idea of an Islamic state has been around all through the the, uh, the 20th century, uh, the long history in, within the Indian subcontinent of so Pakistan. So these movements had had been around. Um, and they they'd been pushing polit- movements and political parties really the Jamaat Islami political party in particular um, is the one I'm thinking is what has been pushing for this idea of an Islamic state um, but Pakistan is also an ethnically diverse society uh, with ethnic movements each province has its own ethnic identity ethnic identities have been central to the con- to the to the sense of, of of belonging in Pakistan for many people. And so the foothold of, of this kind of Islamist politics at the center was not there. So from the 1950s to 1970s, 1970s, um, uh, 1971, Pakistan um, has a civil war. Um, the Bangladesh is born. Pakistan was before this broken into two wings divided by India, East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, and West Pakistan, which is now Pakistan. Um, in 1971, a civil war um, broke out where the, the, the Bengalis, the East at that time East Pakistanis, um, were demanding um, recognition, rights, democratic rights, freedoms. Um, and the West Pakistani establishment, including the army, was unwilling to sort of give over political power to them. Um, they, the leader of the, um, uh, the, 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 the nationalist party there, the Awami League, won, but, um, but was not granted um, the, the kind of uh, political authority. So the West Pakistani army was West Pakistan-based. So the Pakistan had this complex history. So Pakistan has a... Has a a civil war or a war of independence from the perspective of Bangladesh, where Bangladesh is born out of Pakistan in a really violent way. Um, uh, very much, very much one could say uh, that the violence was almost a, a genocidal um, uh, in Bangladesh uh, at, by the Pakistani army against um, the Bengalis. Um, and then later the the, the resistance and, and forces in, and, in, in Bangladesh ended up then turning on on Urdu speakers um, who were there. So these were, the, out of this, you know, a, Pakistan, a democratic Pakistan was born out of a civil war, essentially, and democracy lasted for, for six years um, until the military dictatorship of Ziaul Haq took power. So Pakistan was going through a kind of, I, I mean, people say an identity Christ, what kind of identity should the nation have? And I think there were lots. Of, there was a lot of sense that the only way to hold this nation together effectively is around a kind of Islamic unity. So the military uh, that had long played the dominant role in Pakistan's politics um, began under General Ziaul Haq began this Islamization process. Islamization in Pakistan from seventy seven to eighty eight involved 
uh, uh, many kind of legal interventions. Um, at the same time, you see money flowing into Pakistan in order to money arms flowing into Pakistan in order. So there's a militarization of the society that's linked to the to the to the war against the Soviets um, in Afghanistan, where Pakistan ISI is training mujahideen um, financed by the Saudis, um, um, supported and and financed potentially by the United States. So. So Pakistan is transformed considerably by this Islamization process. At the same time, post-1973, 73 is when you have the oil embargo and oil um, prices um, shoot up. So that's this economic boom that happens in the Gulf. Many Pakistanis begin migrating to the Gulf as workers. Um, and so there's a, a process by which I think Pakistani society goes through quite a considerable say Islamization, um, in which Islamic identity comes to be really, really kind of central. So in 19, when Pakistan transitions back to democracy, um, in the 19, late 80s and 90s, um, there are these kind of political parties, the PMLN takes a more explicitly Islamic identity, the PPP has a more, more, uh, remains more committed to a kind of Ethnic national, you might say there's some some vision of nationalism that's linked to ethnic identities and Pakistan as a federation of ethnic identities. And one vision of Pakistan that's linked to this idea of Islamic unity of Pakistan. Okay? These are the... And all the parties are playing with these principles somewhat, but that's, I think, uh, one way to think about the structure of the politics. Okay? And so, uh, yeah... That's that's what I would say. In the 1990s, Pakistan was kind of back and forth between these political parties, one, uh, the Pakistan People's Party, and one, the PMLN Party. The PMLN Party was sort of more center-right, and the PPP Party, the Pakistan People's Party, was a bit, I mean, it was, I wouldn't call it left-wing, but it had a left-wing history, and it had incorporated many kinds of liberal and left intellectuals, so it's considered in Pakistan to be the more progressive or liberal party, um, but also you know, racked by claims about corruption. Imran Khan rose to, uh, rose, uh, came into the political light, light, landlight first as a, uh, uh, as a, as a he established a, a very well-known um, charitable hospital for cancer. Um, so he had entered into the public as this, as a, as a, as a kind of one, as a cricketer, of course, uh, with that popularity and as a, as somebody who was, you know, doing service to the people, right, um, through charitable um, uh, and able to establish this, the first cancer hospital in Pakistan, um, um, Shah Khanam, it's a very a big thing that his his admirers also reference about him. Um, and in the nineteen, and then in the two thousands, when Pakistan, when the war on terror begins, Arslan, can I can I stop you for just a moment? Sure. This is, I I, I want to talk just uh, get a sense of what when Khan when Khan founds Pakistan Tehreek and Saf in uh, I think it was nineteen ninety six. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is the specific kind of critique that that he wants to make about the the Pakistani because this is a couple of years before Musharraf so there's still a, a, a at least a notionally democratic system yeah. going on here what is what is the niche that he's trying to fill is it strictly kind of political islam is there an ethnic component to it or a a, a cultural you know beyond that uh, economic platform like what is he what is he saying about the the two parties the two dominant parties that he's trying to to sort of contrast against yeah that's a great question i mean his his dominant economic his dominant platform has been anti-corruption that has been the consistent position right the idea that these political parties that are the mainstream political parties are steeped in corruption and they use their power and patronage against the interests of the pakistani people against the interests of the of the unity of the pakistani state and and that these that's 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 been his platform from the beginning, right? That that Pakistan's political establishment, political that is civilian government, because again, uh, he's never been critical of the army until very recently, um, except 
that phase with Musharraf, and we can talk about that. So his argument has always been that the corruption of the political parties, the mainstream political parties, is the source of Pakistan's crisis, problems, economic, social, and everything. And I think that's prob- that's been really the, the most consistent thing. Tariq uh, Insaf, Insaf means justice. His claim was that there's no justice in Pakistan. Um, this is monopolized. The, the political parties prohibited patronage politics, dynastic politics, these things that are, re- remain the touchstones for the, for his platform, dynastic politics, patronage politics, corruption. These things are eating away at the fabric of Pakistani society. That's That's been his consistent position, and that remains that what he organizes his party around right now. So, so Musharraf takes over... Uh, at the end of the 90s and and really you know this is effectively a, a military dictatorship it, it goes through a sort of civilian gloss at, at, at some point but uh yeah, effectively this is a military dictator what is khan doing during this period you you kind of started to allude to his this is the one time he seems to be critical of the military when musharraf is in power uh, until you know more more recently um but what is what is pti doing what is what is khan doing during this period Khan's position, this is this is the war on terror position, which is to say that the Musharraf government allies itself with the United States in the war on terror. And the alliance of the United States uh, with the war on terror um, ultimately sp- spawns the the Pakistani Taliban, okay, the Tariqa Taliban Pakistan. This is a, a separate, not, well, it's not ideologically separate, but it's it's the focused on the Tariqa Taliban that's focused on Pakistan. So Iran Khan was principally concerned with questions like drones. The okay, so the drone warfare that was happening in the tribal belt in Pakistan as well as in, in Afghanistan was um Imran Khan was critical of US involvement. Okay, so there was a stance that he took against U.S. drone strikes, against U.S. involvement in Pakistan, against the Pakistani army and the, the Pakistani state's uh, uh, collusion with the United States in the Iran war. And that became his his position on Musharraf and his critique of Musharraf. Um, I think there was some wavering in the beginning on where he was with Musharraf, but but once the war on terror begins in 2001, once Pakistan becomes in this alliance um, with him, that's that's what he's focused on in in ending dro- drones in particular. I mean, drones are the this kind of ideological touchstone because they involve the violation of Pakistani sovereignty um, at the behest of the United States, the killing of Pakistanis. Um, people at the behest of the United States and his theory about the war on terror and his position on the war on terror was that was that this is spawning the backlash. This is creating the backlash against Pakistan that's creating the crisis of terrorism that then begins to unfold in Pakistan with the rise of the Pakistani Tariqa Taliban and the, uh, and then suicide bombing and other forms of attacks in Pakistan. So, so uh, Imran Khan takes this position on this, against this, um, this, yeah. Maybe this is a good po- place to step back and talk a- in a little more detail about the role that the Pakistani military or security state more broadly, if you want to include the ISI, plays in politics. I think it's obvious it, to, to, you know, even somebody who's maybe not familiar with Pakistani politics, what's going on in the periods when you have an overtly military government under Zeal Haq or the first couple of years of Musharraf's uh, time and power. But but there's a steady presence, there's a steady influence of uh, the military establishment on Pakistani politics. Can you talk a little bit about the the dynamics there and how that works? Yeah, the military establishment has, like I said, been dominant in Pakistani politics for much of Pakistan's history. Um, the military is a major economic stakeholder. Um, it, it takes a, a very large chunk of Pakistan's, uh, the government's budget, um, it has established its own um, industries, if you will. Right? It's involved uh, in. Uh, it's very invested in 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 uh, land development and property. Okay, so it has its um, major areas, uh, expensive uh, real estate in Pakistan. 
um, is controlled by the army, uh, um, army, uh, so the Defense Housing Administration, cantonment, these are nice areas in major cities like Lahore and Karachi. Um, and these are, um, these are, have gone, the, 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 this land has been controlled by the army and, and doled off. It's kind of to, to, uh, officers, um, who then sell it. Um, so there's an economic, uh, also a, a major economic, uh, investment of that, uh, uh, control, um, that the Pakistani army has. The political scientist Aisha Sadiqa is, uh, has written on this. It's a book called Military Inc. where she documents. Now, this is it's difficult to know everything about the army's holdings because it's uh, difficult. You don't. It's so difficult to audit the army and, and understand what it's uh, economic. So, so Pakistan's army is politically powerful, of course, um, the major political power, but it's also economically uh, in, in powerful and uh, deeply, um, yeah. So it, it and so it's a major stakeholder. Now that's where Imran Khan's Imran Khan, um, you know, post Musharraf era, Imran Khan is widely have believed in, in in Pakistan, especially by his critics, to have been allied with the army all through this time um, post Musharraf um, and su- promoted or supported by the army. Um, and I would say very much to kind of manage and, and, and contain the civilian, other civilian parties. Okay. Corruption discourse has been central to that. And Imran Khan has focused his ire, his, his hostility towards the political, the, the civilian parties, not towards the army's economic interests or towards its power, but instead towards the, the civilian, um, uh, on, on the major parties, um, their leadership. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what his perspective has been that these politicians have been, these politicians have been, um, corrupt. They've been, um, they're all thieves. They've been stealing Pakistan's money, resources, building property abroad, um, having houses in London and, and property in London. And they're taking this money out of the country. And by taking this money out of the country, they're impoverishing the country. That's the corruption narrative, right? And that has been, yeah, directed against his opponents um, successfully. What is the the evidence that that gets cited to uh, support the the notion that Khan has this connection with the military? Other than, I mean, you know, PTI's emergence as a as a major political party uh, in a system where y- you can't get to that. St- status that maybe unless the the security state agrees that there are you know kind of goes along with it what, what are what are some of the things that people look to uh or cite when they talk about this these links yeah i mean they w- one is media i mean there are media houses and people who work journalists who work in these media houses that can tell you that the editorial lines are heavily controlled what you can cannot say who you can and cannot talk about um, and and Imran Khan has, of course, used the media to full effect, and, and more recently, social media and, and new forms of media as well, and has been a c- consistent presence. I mean, in 2013, uh, uh, Imran Khan's election showing was weak. In 2018, there's wide reporting. This this is where the contest kind of begins. PTI supporters say that the rigging in the 2018 elections were to prevent Imran Khan and the PTI from getting a majority. But most journalists, at least that I know, that are are convinced that the rigging was in the other direction. Both the control of the media narrative and the literal rigging of elections. The other thing about about Imran Khan's the link is that there are many people who are in the PMLQ, which was allied to Musharraf, which is known as this kind of army, a set of people who are linked um, to the army. Now, this is one of the ways in which the army main, manages the, the civilian setup. Those people are now allied with the PTI or in the PTI. So there's a large chunk of people who are who are allied with Musharraf, if you look at that list, who are in the PTI. So it's not... The other thing is that in 2018, Imran Khan won by absorbing a lot of what are called electables, people who, mm-hmm. yeah, people who are part of these traditional mainstream parties. And, and the shift of many of these people to the PTI is said to have been promoted by the army. So Pakistan is a complex, is, a, is a one of those countries where, frankly, there's like 
often a hole in the truth at the center of it. That's very difficult to know exactly, you know, who's doing what because the the state, you know, this is not. Yeah. So I think that it's hard to always know exactly who has the facts. But but um, you know, I think journalists that I know at least are are very very clear that they. You know, there are no-go areas. There are things they are, they're told not to say. There are things they're told to say. There's a, a, a heavy-handed involvement um, sometimes by the security apparatus. Um, and so Imran Khan has, was kind of granted reign and his unwillingness, in a sense, to do what the other pol- political parties were doing, which is naming. So the party that Imran Khan has, that the, the dominant party right now in the uh, uh, government right now, the PMLN, right, ended up becoming and making explicit statements on the overreach of the military establishment. Imran Khan was not doing that, so you can tell by the by the orientation of the politics itself, where you know because the civilian governments have to wrestle in a sense control away from the the that's this you know from the military. And the ones that are doing that, it's because they're trying to create a space for themselves. Now, Imran Khan himself, after he was removed in the vote of no confidence, has been very vocal and open that he, he was being controlled by the then chief, chief of army staff. So even he's admitting that he didn't have that space. Um, so when, poli- when parties fall out of favor with the government, they, the, with the military, they end up then saying more, as we're seeing right now. I mean, Imran Khan's party is more, even more vocal than others, but they're not, this is not completely unprecedented, right? When you can look at speeches by Nawaz Mia Nawaz Sharif, who is the former exiled prime minister, where he's making this very clear that the, that the military needs to go back to the barracks. This is the, the kind of way that you know, so, so this happens routinely with the parties. They, they have the military's uh, support, and then they come into power, and they, they fall out of favor, and then they find themselves critical of the military. And so, and so you can tell in the tenure and in the content of the of the the politics. I want to get into the the reasons why Khan fell out of favor with the military. But before we do that, maybe we could talk a little bit about. What does PTI's political base look like as the party emerges really as a, a, a major force in the 2010s uh, leading up to the 2018 election that, that where Khan becomes prime minister? Uh, what does the voting base look like? What does it look like geographically, demographically, socioeconomically? Because these are the people, uh, you know, when we, when we get to it in a, in a sh- bit here, these are the people who presumably are out in the streets now or have been out in the streets protesting so what 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 does that look like what does that coalition look like i think the pti begins as a kind of middling class party urban middle class party right um sections of the urban middle class that have long been critical of the mainstream political parties um corruption is important to them they pay taxes they they see that corruption they they want a, a, a kind of representation um and so rising middle classes in urban sectors i think were the original uh, core of that base actually in you know in the, if you look back to 2013 2012 this period like the joke was that the pti followers are all actually just upper classes upper class people and uh, passionate about imran khan and connected to him his persona as an as a as an individual um uh, you know imran khan is a very charismatic he's very good looking he's he has this history of being this this uh, charismatic figure men look up to him he's you know um and so i i so that was the stereotype i i think that he was able to develop his base first and foremost in these middle classes particularly you know in places like punjab um lahore for instance where the PMLN has been dominant. I mean, these are these are the the, the people who you know fell out of or were outside of the patronage networks of the PMLN. They were urban. Um, they they didn't feel they were being represented in any way. Imran Khan was making these this this claim. So now, of course, I don't think that this is a this is an adequate characterization anymore. I think Imran Khan was a has able you know to move out of this. 
uh, the middle classness of of, of that uh, middle upper middle classness, and then and has created all kinds across class, like as as popular populist groups do, um, moving out of those classes and into. Pakistan is one of those countries where statistics um, are, but Imran Khan has won um, uh, by-elections in places that I think are certainly outside of um, those class parameters. I would still say that his ideologically impassioned, emboldened, if you look even at the protests and stuff, impassioned, emboldened are these kind of middling middling classes um, in urban areas. So that's, you know, and that... They're overlapping. I mean, I think they're overlapping with BMLN. It's not like the Pakistan uh, 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 Muslim League uh, in in Punjab. These are these are like overlapping networks of people. Lots of them are intimately related. I know people who are PTI in Karachi. I know you know. I know people who are PBB in Karachi. I know that they hang out together. Even I mean, they're these are not. Fundamental. It's not like there's some fundamental, simple class divide in Pakistan that can map onto the the PTI on the one hand, and then the, these other parties on the other. Um, these are I, I would describe them as intimate divisions um, within almost all the classes, <laughs> right? So there are upper class people that break in one way or the other. Um, I think I think though that Imran Khan at this point it seems reasonable to think that he has the electoral majority um, with him. So if you have an electoral majority, you have to have people from across classes. So let's talk about Khan's term as prime minister after the 2018 election. And, um, you know, what happens to his relationship with the military or the security state and what happens politically that leads us, you know, in 2023 to, uh, you know, Han uh, essentially winding up uh, losing the premiership and, and winding up, you know, kind of as the, uh, the charismatic opposition leader. But I, I'm I'm really interested in what caused this falling out with the military, but, but the political dynamics are, uh, you know, I think important as well. <sighs> to be honest, I think that the, the, that many of us don't have a great answer for this. What happens internally between Imran Khan and, and I mean, these are both institutions that are kind of controlled by single men, right? I mean, Imran Khan is not, this is not a demo. PDI is not a democratic party. It has, Imran Khan is the foremost leader of it. And there's, so I, it's hard to know what he was or was not doing. And, and then the military itself has a chief of army staff and it's, so people often, I think, attribute this to maybe personality clashes that, that Imran Khan in, ended up trying. I think the, 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 the context is that Pakistan's economy has been spiraling, spiraling out of control. Pakistan's debt, uh, crisis is is recurring. Um, our balance of pay- payments crisis is recurring. We're needing to go to the IMF for money. The economic situation, the inflation has reached now 35% or something at this point. So I think that when you're the gov- ruling government and you have no power to control and, and manage the economy, you start to lose your your favor with the populace, with your own, and your patronage networks. Aysan is a patronage Despite how Imran Khan frames politics, it's a patronage system. If you can't bring, you know, benefits to people that are in your, then it starts, then your political uh, structure starts to fragment. So that's important. So in an economic uh, crisis, in an eco, uh, a, a, a downward turn in the economy, you can imagine that uh, tension would start to build between the civilian leadership and the military because you're not really able to do the things that you need to do to sustain your power, to sustain your your democratic mandate. So I think that that was one of, probably one of the core things that was happening. The other thing is that I think that the military 
from my perspective, this is not something people have written about yet, but I, I really think that I really think that the same economic crisis that pushes the the political parties, uh, the civilian uh, leadership to pull away is the same economic crisis that could push the military to overreach even further economically. Um, and what I mean by that is that the, the, the shrinking economic buy affects how the military operates as well because they have to manage uh, their own. So I think that at some level, people describe this as personality, but at some level, it's a structural tension in the civil-military relations when the when the, the the ruling party cannot control or, or or manage an economic situation, it can unravel. That's that's my sense. So, um, other than that, I think they're powerful people, and and they may have fallen out on a, per, a personal level. Um, Imran Khan's party's narrative this is important, was that this was a U.S. orchestrated or backed intervention, a coup, and that the... Um, and so I think that that is the narrative they did, but then they've... Imran Khan himself, even though he doesn't... You know, he, he dances around this issue, but he says himself then that later that, oh, no, it was the opposite. It was the military who... Bajwa the chief of army staff who went to the Americans and then the Americans then put it. It's a pretty convoluted story of how the Americans fit into this, but it's, it's easy. To- <laughs> I was going to ask, I mean, is it, is the dynamic that like the military goes to the U S and then the U S leans on members of parliament to vote, you know, the no confidence to vote on the no confidence motion a certain way, or like, what's the, the mechanism for U S involvement that in this, in this narrative, it's, it's changing. Right? So initially it was, it was there's evidence, this cipher um, that is the evidence that the U.S. told the Pakistani military to intervene and remove Imran Khan. But then he said, no, it, now it turns out it was the chief of army staff. Went, Why would the chief of army staff go to the Americans who then go back to, to them to say remove it? It's not a it is, you know, and I think that I think that. Making it about the U.S. ultimately was a, 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 a convenient way both to, to generate uh, national sympathies and support um, while also disrupting the relationship um, between the U.S. and Pakistan in, in such a way that would pressure the military maybe to respond. So, there, you know, I think that I think that these are. Yeah, political strategies, narratives that are uh, politically expedient, and Imran Khan is known to have gone back and forth, back and forth on most things. He turns one way because you can see structurally why, because he needs to simultaneously challenge the military, but also retain a relationship with them such that he can, you know, come back. So, as you mentioned, and, and there, you know, there obviously is an election coming up uh, this year. Uh, the, the date of which is still, I think, somewhat in dispute. But um, y- you mentioned there the preponderance of available evidence suggests that Khan has a majority support or at least, you know, uh, enough support that, that he would emerge from that, uh, that PTI would emerge from the election in power again. I'm curious, was it, has it been like that the whole time? I mean, the, what was Khan's popularity like generally? Uh, when he was removed in the no confidence vote and and you know was there a lull there and he's rebuilt his popularity or has he been popular the, the entire time what was sort of the public reaction i guess is what i'm asking to the to the no confidence vote i think the public reaction to the no confidence vote was that it's unjust i think that overall that there was this sense that at least he should be he should be allowed to finish his term everyone else has had a shot i think there are lots of people in pakistan and lots of really passionate Imran Khan supporters, and those are the ones you see online. There are lots of people that I personally know and everyone knows who are who are like, well, the other parties don't do what we need them to do. Why don't we give this person a shot? Okay, they're like, you know, it's they're like no, not the ideological supporters. They're like, this is the this is a chance we have. We haven't tried this one. Let's do this. Things are not working. So there's a range of people of their passion for Imran Khan, and I think that that is important to recognize. So I think that lots of those people, I have family that's like this. Lots of those people 
once he was in power long enough, they were they were starting to lose interest in him. Um, and you know, I'm speaking middle upper middle classes. Uh, you know, lose interest in Imran Khan. The only people that matter. <laughs> well, there's a huge chunk of those people that do matter because those are the people that do. Yeah, you're right. They they claim a certain type of citizenship um, by virtue of taxation, by virtue of being educated, by virtue of being the people that they do. They do really do matter a lot, and it, 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 despite not being the largest number of people. So. Um, you know, I, I think these are people who like, yeah, the economic, the economy was not, it's not that this, um, that the economy was going to be turned around in those years. So some of us really wonder why the government would, would want to take the reins of the Pakistani state, why the opposition would have wanted to take the reins of the Pakistani state when, I mean, at that time, it seemed Imran Khan was being weakened considerably by simply being the head of a government that was incapable of solving some of these problems. Um, yeah. So I think that, I think that he was losing that kind of support, lots of lukewarm support. And I think that he was removed in such a way as to then once again, galvanize people around him. And, uh, you know, I think the narrative about American intervention was, was powerful. It worked in a, in a certain way, but I think that, I think it's fair to say that the other parties that have come to power through this are just simply that they've lost, uh, you know, a lot of sections of their support base over the years. And there are like lots of reasons for that, um, complex reasons for that. But yeah, it's, I mean, I think that Imran Khan has absorbed chunks of that urban support base, middle classes that were critical for these parties. What would happen? It feels like I mean, it feels like a stagnation at the political center, which is something we see happening all over the place. I mean, it's not just here, but but it, it really feels like that. Yeah, a stagnation of the old guard parties, the old parties that have been in power for a long time that have seemed to have very little by way of fixing problems, uh, don't have the spine really to make dramatic changes, don't have the power to make dramatic changes, are embedded with yeah stable structures that yeah are not really able to solve the economic underlying economic crises i think um uh, and are in fact benefiting from an economic system that that everyone else is suffering in i mean the eating away at middle class incomes in pakistan is really dramatic i mean it's you know when when you're losing 35% of value on your money when when fruit uh, expenses when you can't, you know, like the idea that a middle class family is struggling to buy fruit is a big, big thing, and and I think that people are really frustrated and really fed up with it. And I think if Iran Khan was in power right now, they would be really frustrated and fed up also. So you know, but I do think that people have hope, have some hope in him, um, and he's able. You know, one thing that we haven't discussed, right, is his real personal, his ability to create this kind of personal connection with. with well, let's. This. Yeah, let's let's get into that and talk about what's been going on since uh, he was removed in the no confidence vote. He's been leading uh, these marches and you know holding rallies very charismatically, kind of trying to rebuild the case for for uh, PTI and for electing him uh, heading into this upcoming election he's been uh, at one point shot while on the campaign trail in what he's called an assassination attempt by the government. I don't know what the status of that case is. Uh, he's now been, you know, he's, he's been in legal jeopardy for some time. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the context of that and what finally wound up uh, putting him in jail, at least for a couple of days until he was released by the Supreme Court. And that has set uh, a lot of people on edge uh, of late, you know, in terms of his, his status. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's been, of course he was, he's been rallying, he's been demanding elections. Um, um, the, the dissolving of the assemblies meant that, uh, under the constitution elections were meant to happen in 90 days. Um, they've been pushed off. Um, the government pushes them off. The courts are political actors, um, and, and he has favor within the court system, within the Supreme Court, um, from, uh, from the Chief Justice. And so, 
you know, so there's uh, a, a kind of constitutional, um, he's trying to invoke the constitutional necessity of an election, which um, they're confident they will win. So, and and the, the, the PDM parties, the, the collection of opposition parties that are now in power, that are, uh, w- um, are pushing that election off, the military is pushing that election off, that's why there's this political stalemate uncertainty where he's he's trying to enforce that constitutional um uh demand um and so he's been doing that since he's been removed in april of 2022 he's been pushing and pushing and pushing he's been increasingly um escalating his uh, direct critique of of the army uh, top brass um, he's named people in the assassination attempt. You know, so many times political leaders, they sort of tiptoe around the specific people. Or So he's been naming specific people um, who he accuses um, of being involved in that assassination attempt on him. So, so yeah, he's, I think it's a, you know, it's a political uh, crisis um, that would only in a sense be resolved through elections in a way, but the, the establishment uh, and the, the ruling parties are, are not um, willing to go in that at this point. So that's where we are. And it's a stalemate and it's a political st- and, and he clearly has pop- a popular support base. Elections in Pakistan are, I'm not saying he won't win. I think that the, 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 the lots of people, believe he will win. But elections in Pakistan are, there are lots of moving parts in them. People switch parties. They're like chunks of populace, populations that vote with with local leaders and authorities that move in one direction or the other. This is how Imran Khan absorbed, these are the electables that Imran Khan absorbed into his party when he won in 2018. So, you, I mean, I, I do think that he has a popular mandate, but I also believe that elections are sociologically complex entities that that bring into play. So who's going to turn on him? Who's going to switch sides at the last minute? These are the things that the, the, the powers that be are able to create in election situations. I mean, there are literally the children of ex-generals in the PTI party, these people have moved parties so many times, they can move again. In other, there are lots of people like that that move between these parties in key rupture moments. So we, you know, I think that right now he has that mandate, um, but we would see. So to, to close it out, I, I don't want to ask you to predict... Uh, really, or any anything more about the election? But maybe you could talk. But a can you bit predict about, who will win? Yeah, who's going to win? <laughs> and you know, I have some, I have some uh, bets riding on this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but maybe we could kind of forecast how things are likely to go between now and election day, and and in terms specifically of uh, Khan's legal issues, whether they are legitimate or politically driven. Uh, do you envision the government trying again to to kind of get him in prison and disqualify him from the election? And then if that fails and assuming that he does win, what's going to happen in terms of his or what could happen in terms of his relationship with the security establishment? Having had this falling out, will they patch things up and let bygones be bygones? That seems possible or is there going to be some real tension there in, in a second uh con government as far as the as far as the um the cases against him um and there are quite a few <laughs> they're obviously politically motivated but it's important to recognize that other cases are also politically motivated. So Nawaz Sharif right now, the ex-prime minister, the leader of the PMLN, is in exile basically in, in London. That case of corruption, again, has legitimate elements to it, but is also politically motivated. And he was also declared it, it, it not capable of running in the election because of corruption so you know on the clause that he's not honorable essentially right so the, i think the the strategy right now is to see to try from the powers that be to do a similar thing 
So it's not unprecedented is the point. Imran Khan's followers simply don't believe that he can be corrupt, right? Imran Khan's followers' approach to this is that this is totally politically motivated. But they also believe that the case against the former prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, was totally legitimate. But that was also politically motivated. I'm not saying there isn't corruption. I'm just saying corruption is a more complex thing that the way, than Imran Khan supporters tend to frame it as, right? Um, they see their opposition as corruption as given, but they see the corruption charges against them as totally fabricated. So that, I think that's, that is, seems to be the strategy right now that being employed by the government and by uh, the establishment against Imran Khan to have him declared, uh, you know, not capable of running in an election. And of course they know that absent Imran Khan, this party is not, it doesn't really have any force to it. You know, it's, it's, it's his personality that holds this, um, this together. So I, that's about as much as I can predict. He's, he's going to battle this. His people are going to battle this on the street. There's crackdowns on them that are completely, uh, out, you know, outrageous and, and condemnable. Um, and at this point, they're going to mobilize and, and the powers, the government right now is going to, to, to crack down. Um, um, there has been rumor or talk of the military using um, military courts to try the ones um, who recently um, have been arrested um, for protesting. So I think that that is, that's where we are right now. That beyond that, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen. It's a very volatile situation. It's a very sad situation. Um, and it, I don't see a clear path forward. Um, elections would be the path forward. Um, then if he were to get a popular mandate and, you know, to build a government, but it doesn't seem that that is at this point, what's happening, what's happening right now is crackdown on the PTI leadership and on the PTI workers and the use of, of really, really harsh, um, uh, yeah, violence, um, and, and law, um, laws, um, the army act, um, I think I, I think the army chief recently said that they would use, you know, these kind of yeah army regulation uh, act against against the um, the protesters, try them in military courts. These are you know big steps um, to crack down. So that's really where we are. Beyond that, moving forward, it, it it's it's hard to know if he were to come back. He would I think come back having built up, um, having created some kind of um, uh, agreement um, with, the, with the military top brass. Um, I think the, the narrative on the PTI side is that there is actually a divide within the military establishment where some part of it supports Imran Khan and some part of it is against him and that that's playing out in some way. If that's the case, again, these are opaque institutions it's difficult to exactly know what's happening inside of them the other narrative on the pti side is that the 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 rank and file are overwhelmingly for iran khan and therefore it's produced it, it, there's a problem within the military um because the the top brass and is not the rank and file is not agreement with the top brass so that's the fragmented army um, it's really remarkable in one way is important that that people who kind of are the, on the nationalist wing of things, which is what the PTI is, right? The unified nationalism of Pakistan who have long been that middle class that I was speaking of before, long been the people supportive of the army, right? Long been critical of the, the civilian government and long seen the army as this kind of, uh, you know, savior institution of Pakistan, Today, these people have really, really turned, in a sense, um, against the army. So that's a huge development in Pakistan because this is a chunk of people that had long been defenders of the army as a kind of, as a stabilizing, unifying institution of the Pakistani state. And that has been eroded, um, the, the legitimacy of the army in, in the eyes of of these people, you know, these are a lot of these people supported Musharraf as well. So there are people who were like, I, I see them online. I know people who were Musharraf supporters who are now adamantly against. So 
you see this kind of shift the army's loss of its its a kind of legitimacy imran khan has been able to do that and one of the reasons I'll say this i think this is an important thing to understand is one of the reasons is that in a sense imran khan owns the same national narrative that the army owned right this idea of the, a kind of unified country he invokes islam islamic symbols that uh, and he 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 links himself back to the founders of pakistan and he's stands against the corruption of the of the political elites the civilian elites and so he's in a in a sense a civilian version of them and so they're locked in this battle of of narratives in which who is really representative of the nation Arsalan Khan we'll leave it there um sure there will be more to talk about in the months to come uh, but thank you so much for coming on the program and helping us understand a little bit more about Imran Khan and about uh, Pakistani politics yes thank thank you for having me